Good morning. All right. Uh, my name is Jonathan. Welcome to Redeemer. Um, one of the pastors here. We are continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. And this week, we are going to be looking at the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. You were handed a bulletin when you came in uh, this morning, and on the left side, you have the passage that you can follow along if you don't have a Bible with you, and on the right side is a simple outline we're going to follow. Our text this morning presents us with some, some difficult truths. We closed our time last week with a challenge to examine ourselves before God, and the question we were asking was, who are we participating with? Um, another way we might want to put that is, is whose life are we sharing in, right? At, at Redeemer, we talk about how we exist so that we might share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. And the question we left with was, whose life are we sharing with? Are we keeping in step with the spirit that is work in the, at work in the sons of disobedience? Or are we walking in the good works which God prepared beforehand? If you remember from last week, the playing field was leveled, meaning that both Jew and Gentile are dead in sin. And it's God who saves, regardless of our pedigree. And in Christ, we have peace with God. In Christ, we have peace with God. But peace with God means that we must have peace with one another. Historically, the church has not always thrived in this area, sadly. Division and strife have followed the church throughout the course of her history. Um, a couple of examples. The Great Schism of 1054, where the East and West were separated. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. And often, there's good reason for division, right? But there were times, more often than any of us should be comfortable with, when the church used her power and authority to draw other lines of division, a line which Christ abolished through his death, burial, and resurrection. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, sadly developed into an anti-Semite toward the end of his life. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest thinkers and theological minds in American history, was a slave owner. George Whitfield, although he argued publicly for the fair treatment of slaves, was also a slave owner and supported the institution. The Southern Baptist Convention was started in 1845 in an effort to uphold the institution of slavery in the South. The silence of the church during the Holocaust while Jewish people were being marched off into concentration camps was deafening to the world. And the atrocities of South African apartheid, much of which was based on what Reformed theologian called biblical reasons for division. Theologians throughout the course of history use the Bible to support things like slavery and segregation in our own country. And one could argue that they were all a product of their time, environment, which is in part true, but the calling placed upon the people of God that we see throughout the scriptures is to be distinct from the world, regardless of our time and place in history. A couple of things before we jump into our text. I'm not here this morning to make any political statements, although much of what we read in scriptures will shape our political leanings and decisions. I'm not here to stir up unnecessary controversy, although the gospel will cause us to stumble as we follow it, to shine, as we allow it to shine forth into our lives. 
And I'm not here to point fingers, which is something that the word of God does to us all as we seek to follow Jesus. What I am here to do is to see what it is that God has for us in his holy word in the scriptures. And there are times when the truths of the Bible conflict with our own understanding of the world. And when this happens, we have a decision to make. We can explain it away, we can justify it, or we can allow the Spirit of God to work in and through us so that we might look more and more like Jesus. Ephesians poses a walking question to us. With whom are we walking? With whom are we walking? Are we participating in the life of Christ or are we participating in the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience? With that, I want to pray and then we're going to jump into our text and see what the Lord has for us in the second half of Ephesians 2. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the beauty of the scriptures and, and even as we sang that, that we need your blood, Father. But the beautiful thing about the blood of Christ is that it is the great equalizer, Father. That there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no male or female. There is no slave and free. We are all one in Christ, Father. And I pray that as we look through your word this morning, that those truths would ignite something in our soul, Lord, and that we would be spurred on to good works, Father. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So remember where you came from. The first point, we're looking at verses 11 through 12 in chapter 2 of Ephesians. It says this, Therefore remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember that you were Gentiles. Remember that you were called something. The text says right there in verse 11, you were called the uncircumcision. By whom? The circumcision. You were without Christ. You were alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God. And what we see coming out here is that there is an us-them world in which we are getting the opportunity to kind of peer into. There was an us-them world, and the Gentiles were in the category of them in the eyes of the Jewish people. See, the nation of Israel was called to be a particular people. They were called to be unique and distinct from the nations with the goal of using that distinction so that they might be a blessing to the nations. However, they used their position and their privilege that they had as being God's chosen people as license to posture themselves against the nations. They didn't like other people. They weren't particularly fond of the nations. And, and, and for some of that, like we can understand why, and we're going to take a look at the book of Jonah for a brief minute this morning, and we can understand why that they, they were feeling as though they were being oppressed by the surrounding nations. And, and in all honesty, they were. Even as they sat in, in, in the first century under Roman oppression, they were being oppressed. But God was calling them to be different. God was calling them to be distinct, regardless of what the surrounding world was doing to them. Israel was meant to bring God to the nations and to draw the nations back to God. Israel was meant to bring God to the nations and then draw the nations back to God. 
So let's look at these verses, right? It says that you were Gentiles in the flesh. In other words, uncircumcised. Their flesh was literally different. It's literally different. And the Jewish people used this as an opportunity to remind them, and they would call them uncircumcision. It was, it was basically an ethnic slur, if you will. Look at the uncircumcision, guys. Look at the uncircumcision. They're not like us. We have God. They're just a bunch of pagans and heathens. They're not even circumcised. Paul is saying, remember being called that? And the irony here is that who were they called that by? They were called that by the circumcision, where it says this. It says, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And there's irony here. Let me explain why. Because what Paul is identifying, that circumcision which the Jewish people possessed was a circumcision that they possessed that was made by hands. And this is a technical term used throughout the Greek Old Testament to refer to idolatry. Anytime you see made in the flesh by hands or made with hands, the Old Testament is referring to idolatry. G.K. Beale, one of my professors, he did a ton of work on this, and he said that every single time this phrase came up, a total of 14 times in the Greek Old Testament, it always referred to idolatry. It always referred to idolatry. In other words, Paul is saying that these people worshipped their circumcision and allowed national pride to derail them from their holy vocation to be a blessing to the nations. They allowed national pride to derail them from being a blessing to the nations. See, the Gentiles were what? They were without Christ, meaning they weren't Christians, but they were also alienated from Israel, and they were strangers to the covenant of promise. And my question is, is it possible that this alienation was directly tied to the Jewish people holding the nations, the Gentiles, at arm's length. They didn't want to get involved in that world. They didn't want to be made unclean by that world, so they kept them at arm's length. They didn't tell them the wonders of God. They didn't tell them the glory of Yahweh. And, and we have an example of this. Remember the story of Jonah. Remember how Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, to do what? To warn them of impending judgment. And he ran from God's call. He ran from God's call. He did everything he could so as not to proclaim the goodness of God to the people of Nineveh. Finally, God forced him to get there by, by a number of wild and bizarre circumstances. And you can read it out in the book of Jonah. He's swallowed by a big fish and, and, and literally vomited up onto the shore. It's a wild story. But then Jonah says this after the people of Nineveh repent. He says this. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was sent, when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you were going to forgive these people. And I didn't want you to. I didn't want you to forgive them. God, I hate those people. How dare you forgive those people? Do you know what those people have done to us? Perhaps Jonah was scared, right? Um, Bible scholar uh, Tremper Longman says it like this. He says, it's better to understand Jonah's reluctance 
and resultant oppression as stemming from God's compassion, not, to, not just toward a Gentile nation, but a vicious and cruel imperial power that constantly threatened his homeland. Jonah felt Israel deserved better than to have its God forgive its enemies. The psalmist constantly calls upon God to destroy his enemies, and here God forgives them. Here God forgives them. So where were the people of Nineveh headed, right? The people of Nineveh were without hope in the world. The people of Nineveh were without God in the world. And the people of Nineveh would have perished under the weight of their own sin as God was ready to execute judgment upon them. And what was required, because Jonah wasn't willing to do it himself, what was required was that God had to step in because Israel, represented by Jonah, was unwilling to fulfill their vocation as the people of God. So God stepped in. God stepped in and said, no, you are going to go there and you are going to proclaim the good news and they are going to repent whether you like it or not. But Jonah was terrified. He was terrified. And that's a lot of the reasons why we as people build up our own dividing walls of hostility because we're scared. We don't want the thing that we have that we hold so dear to change whatever that thing might be. We're scared of it. We're terrified of it. And what God is calling us to in this text as we continue to march through, he's saying, no, 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 you cannot build up dividing walls. You cannot allow your differences to separate you. You are one in Christ. And you need to go and proclaim that good news to whomever it is. And you need to welcome into your midst whomever it is that wants to come in. This is what it means to be the church. We're different than the world. We're different than whatever political affiliation we might find ourselves agreeing with. We're different than that. We have to be different than that. Because scripture calls us to be different. And I struggled this week thinking through this text because I know these are hard things. Because I struggle with them myself. A few years back, I worked, uh, I worked up in Newark as a, as a high school writing teacher. And um, I remember I, I, I had a hard time going to that job. I didn't really want to do it, but we needed the job, and I got the job, and it, and it paid well. And what I learned as I was there, now, now just brief context about me. You know, God saved me around my junior, senior year of high school. I went to church. I was reading my Bible, studying theology, went to Bible college. I had a passion for God and ministry. I was involved in a great church following college, learned a ton. I wanted to continue serving God. And then I became a teacher at a charter school in Newark. And it was there where God started to unearth some really horrific things in my soul, things that I never knew even existed in my own life. I had thoughts about the African-American community that were just completely racist. I unknowingly believed that my people were superior, and not in like a Ku Klux Klan or Nazi sort of way, but in a more socially palatable way. And it wasn't until God brought me face to face with fellow image bearers who were different from me was I able to see it. It was my proximity or my nearness to African Americans that did three things in my life. One, it unearthed racism in revealing who I truly was. It showed me the beauty of a culture that was different than mine and how a system of injustice was in large part to blame for why communities of color had been held down throughout the course of American history. And finally, it revealed to me how I was and probably still am complicit in that system every time I don't speak up or do something about the injustice I see in this world. 
That was rooted in fear for me. I was unaware of an entire world, and I was afraid of it, partly because of what I saw on TV, partly because of what I was taught growing up. And, and, and make no mistake about it, it was Israel's failure. Israel's failure was often rooted in fear, and it was built upon ethnic boundary markers, which were put in place by God to serve as a blessing, but they were hijacked by the enemy and used as a means to divide and bring about hostility between Jew and Gentile. The text goes on. He says this in verse 13, but now in Christ, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, when Israel failed, true Israel stepped in. And how does he step in? He steps in by dying. He steps in by dying. And the point is that he brings those who were far off near. And he does it in the most ironic way. He he wins victory by dying. He gains victory by dying. If that's not irony, then I don't know what is. And why does he do it? Because verse 14 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been blessed, for he himself is our peace. He does this because he is our peace. And what do we mean by peace here? This is the same kind of peace that we see throughout the Old Testament, that shalom sort of peace. And this doesn't mean that it's the absence of violence. It means that, but it's so much more than the absence of violence. It's the presence of wholeness, completeness, reconciliation, friendship with God, friendship with one another. It's it's more than just not hating, it's loving. It's more than not striking back your enemy, but actually coming alongside your enemy and lifting them up. It's the stuff we talked about in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. The stuff that we read through and we're like, there's no way I can live my life like that. And it's the very life that Jesus is calling us to. And it's the very life that leads to human flourishing. What do I mean by human flourishing? Making us more and more human. Making us more and more conform to the image of Christ. As we participate in the spirit of God, not the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. See, the powers have hijacked this world. That's what Ephesians is getting at. The powers have hijacked this world, and it has taken every single good institution, and it has breathed its air into it, so that now it's no longer functioning in the way it was intended to function. Governments no longer function in the way they were intended to function. Order and law no longer function in the way it was intended to function. And the law of God didn't function in the way it was intended to function, because what happened, it drove a wedge between two people groups, Jews and everybody else. And don't get it mistaken, Satan is still on the prowl doing the very same thing in our own midst. And we have to be aware of that. We have to allow 
the truth of the scripture and the glory of the gospel, which breaks down every single dividing wall of hostility to penetrate our hearts. We have to, because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means that we're going to look a little bit different than the rest of the world. In being our peace, Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, is disarming the powers and authorities who brought division into this world. Division here based on ethnic boundary markers, socioeconomic boundary markers, and any other boundary marker you can think of. And what do we mean by peace? We mean reconciliation. He talks about it here. He talks about the idea of two worlds coming together. I mean, that's the thesis of the entire book, right? Verse 10 says this in chapter 1. It says, as a plan for the fullness of time to what? Unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. As he's bringing heaven and earth together, he's also trying to bring this world together because the ethic of heaven needs to penetrate this world. And how does it penetrate this world? It penetrates this world through the church. Through the church. And that's the very thing that Satan wants to get his midst on. That's the very thing that the enemy is trying to disrupt, trying to cause division in. And that's why this book was written. It's all about the unity of God's people. The unity of God's people. We can't allow these things to separate us. Whether it's race, ethnicity, socioeconomic, whatever the case may be, even sin as it enters into our midst, we can't allow it to divide the people of God. We can't allow that. Because then the enemy is winning. I had a friend that that used to say this. He used to say he'd point at situations. He'd say, Satan's winning. Satan's winning. And the question we need to ask as we, as we live our lives, as we engage with our neighbors, as we engage with the world around us, is Satan winning in our midst? We know Satan's not winning when it comes to the, the world. Like God's at work. God's going to do his thing regardless of whether or not we conform to it. But, man, we have an opportunity. We get to be folded into that story. We get to be folded into that story. Jesus is breaking down every single dividing wall of hostility. Every single dividing wall of hostility. He, he goes on, right? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create one new man in the place of the two. So making peace. So what are these, what does that mean? Does that mean God just got rid of the law? Like we don't have to worry about the law of God anymore? Like Torah is done? Like no, that's not what this is getting at. And it's important that we note that, right? He says this, he says, he broke down the dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, what? Expressed in ordinances. That's a really important phrase if you look at your Bibles in verse 15. Expressed in ordinances. Colossians 2.20 is helpful here. It says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The ordinances or regulations, right? This is what it's referring to in Colossians 2.20, the ordinances. These were the portion of the law that dealt with ethnic boundary markers. This is what is being abolished in Christ. The ethnic boundary markers are being abolished in Christ. And that does not mean that we just pretend we're all the same. We're not talking about like a monolithic people of God. 
We're talking about all of us in our differences, in our cultural differences, racial differences, socioeconomic differences, that we are brought together into this beautiful mosaic called the church where we are learning from one another, where I can sit with, with an African-American brother or sister of mine, I can learn from their experiences in the church. I can sit with an Asian-American um, Christian and learn from their experiences. I can, I can sit with someone who maybe is below the poverty line and learn from their existences, um, from their experiences. That's what it means that we're all learning from one another in the church. That's what Christ is doing. He's, he's, he's taking from all over the world and forming a people of God. And, and if you go to Revelation, which we'll go in a little bit, is those distinctions aren't, aren't obliterated. They're just no longer boundary markers. We do still, like I'm Italian-American and I'm proud of it. I made pizza last night. I made lots of it, too much of it. Some of you even liked it on, on Instagram. Frank Savannah liked it on Instagram. And I said, all right. And it was really good. I, I revel in the fact that I'm Italian. I love it. But man, do I love experiencing the cultures of other people. Do I love it? Oh my goodness. Because, because it opens our eyes. And, and that's what it is, right? It's proximity. It's right. When we're, when we're far from a group of people, we have all sorts of assumptions about said group of people. But when you get into life and you start doing life with other groups of people, whether, whether they're ethnic differences, socioeconomic differences, whatever the case may be, you start to learn about them. You start to understand them. And you start to realize, like, man, the world's much bigger than I realized. And God's doing a work. God's doing a work. And we are Christians first. Every single time we are Christians first. Every single time, no other identity trumps our being Christ's. Not a single one. Not a political party. Not a nation. Not an ethnicity. Not a socioeconomic status. Not an age. None of that trumps who we are in Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying that dividing wall, the one that existed between Jew and Gentile, it has been obliterated. And guess what? All dividing walls of hostility are being obliterated in Christ because we are all one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? And he says this, he says, he, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. New creation is in our midst. New creation is in our midst. From the moment Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, new creation was sweeping through the world. And that's what we're dealing with. And again, the question who are we keeping in step with? Because there's so much in this world that wants to divide us. But Jesus is saying, no, we're one in Christ. This is what it means to be a new creation. It means that we don't allow those boundary markers to keep us from fellowship. We don't allow those boundary markers to, to instill fear in us so that we're unwilling to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, right? Remember Jonah. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to go. Would any of you want to go to Nineveh? Like, they were bad people, they weren't, it wasn't like, oh, like Nineveh's like a cool place to hang out. Like, no, 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 if you weren't like of Nineveh, then like 
Like, no, you don't, you don't hang out with Ninevites, especially if you're Jewish. You don't hang out with Ninevites because they want to kill you. And, and you know, what, you know what, what God says to Jonah? Yeah, yeah, those people. Can you go tell them about me? Yeah. That's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to be the means by which those dividing walls of hostility continue being broken down. It's so important. It's so important. He keeps on going in this text. Um, Verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body um, through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Here, um, here he's quoting Isaiah. It's, it's, a, it's a great passage. He's quoting Isaiah 57, 19. And he says, in 57, 19, he says, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And the beautiful thing about Isaiah 57 is that it's in context. Whenever the Bible is quoting an Old Testament passage, it's not so that we just get that one little verse. He wants us, it's almost like, a, I'm going to borrow from the Bible project, guys, um, a hyperlink. When you click on a hyperlink, what happens? Does it just show you the hyperlink or does it give you a whole bunch of information. A whole bunch of information is the answer to that question. It gives you a whole bunch of information, right? So here, when you have an Old Testament reference, it's a hyperlink. You click on it and you go and it's like, oh my gosh, there's all this context. And if you read further back in Isaiah 56, he says this, he says, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. And then he says this in verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who both choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give him my, give in my house and within my walls. And then he says this, pow, no, that's not what he says. Um, he says a monument name, and he says this in verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain to make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples, for all peoples. Oh, man, this is, this is part of the good news, guys. This isn't just so much that, like, we get saved. Yes, amen, 100%. We get saved. Our sins are forgiven. But the good news is that we get to get saved because most of us in this room do not hail from Israel. And the good news is that now you also get to get saved. You also get access to the promises, to Jesus. That's gospel, guys. Most of us wouldn't be in this room if it wasn't for the Abrahamic covenant, we wouldn't be here. We'd be without hope. We'd be without God in the world. Peace means that in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, American citizen or foreigner, Hispanic, black, white, whatever, we are all one household of God. Every single one of us. And that means we need to treat one another as such. That means we need to watch what we say, the jokes that we engage in, because those have implications. That's just our heart bubbling over. We need to watch that, because every time we make a joke that is racially motivated or ethnically motivated or socioeconomically motivated, we are keeping in step with the enemy rather than the Spirit of God. 
That's, that's what we're doing. That's just the reality. Because God doesn't, God doesn't, God's not okay with that. God's not okay as we just hail insults across the aisle or at other um, types of people. He's not okay with that. It's not funny to him. Because those are his people. Those are his image bearers. It'd be like if someone made fun of your kid. Is that funny to you? It's certainly not funny to me. I've shared stories what I do when people say something to my kid. It's certainly not funny to me. Like, I'm ready at, at like, the drop of a dime to throw a right hook at any, I, I don't, like, I don't care if you're bigger than me. I'm going to go Frank's down again. I don't care if it's you, Frank's down. I'm, I'm going to hit you if you say something to my kid. I'm going to do it. I'm, it won't go well, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> Lord knows I'm going to try. God cares about his kids. He's not cool with it. It's not funny to him. It's not making him laugh. For through him we both have one. We both have access, verse 18, in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here's where it gets great. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of God, the dwelling place of Yahweh himself in us. And remember, Ephesians is not about individuals, right? It's about the corporate body of Christ. We are the temple of God. Not this, not this building. It's a lovely building, but it's certainly not the temple. God resides in his people. We, as the household of God, built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, which Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone are being joined together, that we might grow into a holy temple together. We are the end times temple, built together into a dwelling place for God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is making clear that the church does not operate along the same lines as the world does. We are not to uphold these lines of division, but rather we are one in Christ. And if this is the case, then what we need to be are heralds of reconciliation. Heralds of reconciliation between humanity and God and heralds of reconciliation among the divisions of this world, beginning with the divisions within our own church. There's no place for ethnic, racial, or socioeconomic supremacy because in Revelation 7, it says this, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from where every nation, from where all tribes, and from whom peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And all of them were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, every single people group, the good news of Jesus is that we all get to be here. We all get to be here. All of us. That's what Jesus is doing in the world. And we want to be a part of that story. We want to be participating in that story. Oh, it's, so, it's such good news. I get very excited about this. 
because it's heavenly news, right? Think of the idea of the temple, right? It says that we are seated where? In the heavenly places with God, right? It says that in Ephesians 2. And now it talks about how we are the temple of God. So not only are we participating with what's going on up there, but God is participating in what's going on down here as we sit in the midst of this holy temple. He's in our midst. He's here with us. He, he, he wants to walk with us, and he wants us to walk with him. It's a reciprocal relationship by grace. Make no bones about it. We have been saved by grace through faith, lest any man should boast. But man, we are called to walk in those good works. And those good works means that we are the temple of God. We are these mobile dwelling places where we go, God goes, and we proclaim the good news as we walk through this earth. And we participate him when we fight for justice, when we fight for the oppressed, when we fight for the marginalized, as we do that in the name of the resurrected king. That's good news. That's good news. There are no dividing walls of hostility in the church. None, period, stop. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And if it does, that is the devil. It's the devil. That's not Jesus. I don't care if, if, it's, if, it's, if it's hands in the air praising God. I don't care if it's Bible reading every Sunday morning. Where there are dividing walls of hostility in the church, Satan dwells. With whom are we participating? With whom are we participating? We are going to be together for all eternity. And eternity started 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we, mean, and we need to make things right today. Because to be at peace with God means that we are to be at peace with one another. So as we come to the table this morning, we need to remember what we are participating in. We're participating in communion. We're participating in a meal that brings people together. In the words of one pastor, there's no separate bread and cup for the rich or for the poor. There's no separate bread and cup for black or white. There's no separate cup for undocumented immigrant or U.S. citizen. There's no separate cup for Republican or Democrat. There's one cup and one loaf. One cup and one loaf. There's one table, there's one church, and there's one Lord. And we are invited by grace to sit and eat with one another and with Christ. The table is not a reward for the godly. It's not a reward for the godly, but it's a gift for the broken of which we all are. We need to recognize our brokenness and allow the grace of God to cleanse us so that we might walk in newness of life. The gospel's so big. It's so big. It's much bigger than our individualized salvations. It is that, but it's so much bigger than that. It has implications that stretch across every single facet of our lives. Ephesians touches on so many of them. It touches on ethnic divides. It's gonna to touch on marital divides. It's gonna to touch on divides between fathers and sons. It's gonna to touch on divides between slave and free, which is a, a bizarre concept to talk about in our day and age. Touches on all these things. Because what Paul is getting at is that you, as the people of God, us, 
as the temple of the living God, with Jesus in our midst, we are going to be different from the world so that the rest of the world might peer over the fence and catch a glimpse of just what God is like. And make no mistake, they look at us and that's how they determine who God is. And so when we're keeping in step with the Spirit, they have a really clear vision of God. When we're keeping in step with the Spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, they have a very unclear vision of God, but it is their vision of God. So we need to give them one that identifies clearly who our King is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, Lord God. The wonderful news that in you we have life, we have peace, we have reconciliation with you and with one another, Father. Help us to lean into that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.